Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikaway, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Today is Sunday, August the 21st, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, uh, to yet another edition of our program. And later on in our program, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll have dispatches on the continuing war involving uh, Russia's special military operations in Ukraine. Also, uh, we'll discuss uh, the fact that the Somalian authorities uh, say they have ended a standoff uh, with rebels at the Hyatt Hotel in Mogadishu, where 21 people have been killed since Friday evening. Tanzania has been successful in providing Internet access to the communities in the Kilimanjaro Mountains, and Angola is preparing for national elections this coming week. In the second and third hours, we continue our focus on Black August with the reexamination of the assassination of prison activist and writer George L. Jackson, um, on this day, uh, some 51 years ago, uh, these and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Uh, stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude uh, with uh, the artist Remy Ongala uh, from the United Republic of Tanzania. Let's listen in. Shangazi wala mjomba Nina binamu wala rafiki 
itawakusanya wateule wote walioteuliwa katika pembeni za dunia siko ya mwisho Mungu akitoa huku ukifale utapelekwa kaburini na nyimbo za mwombolezo hata kwa Mungu malaika wanaimba Muzika kuna mwenyewe Muziki ni mwito Muziki ni fundisho Muziki mwomorezo kilio Usinione nikiimba Ukazani ninayofuraha Umeni nayo uzuni moyoni Kazi ni kwako 
ni mwanafunzi wae shuleni kwako maisha wewe maisha wewe nenda taratibu
Mboni wachinja machiasa Mlezi wabakuize Wamekunja wate pamoja kutoka kwao Kipo utaki watu wakipenanda Mezoea kututenganisha Kipo we kipo Kipo wakina uruma
In other news, in the Horn of Africa state of Somalia, Somalian authorities earlier today ended an attack uh, by Islamic extremists that left 21 people dead and over 110 wounded when gunmen stormed a hotel in the capital. It took uh, Somalian forces uh, more than 30 hours to contain the fighters who had stormed Mogadishu's Hyatt Hotel on Friday evening in an assault that started with loud explosions. The attack is the first major terror attack in Mogadishu since Somalia's new leader, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, took over in May. The siege ended around midnight, Police Commissioner Abdi Hassan Hijir told reporters. During the attack, the security forces rescued many civilians trapped in the hotel, including women and children, he said. Health Minister Dr. Ali Haj Adam uh, reported uh, 21 deaths, 117 people were wounded, with at least 15 in critical condition. He noted that some victims may not have been brought uh, to hospitals. The Islamic extremist group Al-Shabaab, which has ties with Al-Qaeda, claimed responsibility for the attack, the latest of its frequent attempts to strike places visited by government officials. Uh, Al-Shabaab opposes the federal government and outside groups that support it. Al-Shabaab remains the most lethal Islamic extremist group in Africa and the biggest threat to political stability in the volatile horn of African nations. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe, and in the East African state of Tanzania, Tanzania has installed a high-speed Internet line on the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro to improve the safety of porters and climbers as they climb Africa's highest peak. State-owned Tanzania Telecommunications uh, several days ago switched on the line installed at uh, 3,720 meters above sea level. The network will cover the peak and its mythical snow at 5,895 meters by the end of the year. In the past, it was a bit dangerous for visitors and porters to operate without Internet, and that's according to Nape in Yawi uh, at the inauguration of the service surrounded by government officials and tourists. All tourists will be connected to this place, he added, from the Harambo huts. Located in northeastern Tanzania, near the border with Kenya, the mountain is a popular destination for tourists and mountaineers, with about 35,000 climbing uh, the mountains each year. The mountain, uh, which was celebrated by Ernest Hemingway in his book, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, and the area around it are classified as a national park and listed as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Last year, a government cable car project on the southern slopes of Kilimanjaro drew widespread criticism from walkers and environmental organizations. Technology is increasingly penetrating the mountain world, from the Wi-Fi access available to Everest climbers to smartphones that provide early warnings of an accident. And finally... In the southern African state of Angola, in the final weekend leading to Angola's general elections, the ruling MPLA party held its last rally on August the 20th, yesterday. According to the People's Movement for the Liberation of Angola, the MPLA, which has been in power for the last 47 years, around 600,000 people attended the meeting organized on the outskirts of the capital of Luanda. President Jao Lorenko who is running for a second term, took to the stage to defend his actions since 2017 and also shared some political promises such as boosting electricity production and building new refineries. 
we have reminded you uh, what this government has done for five years. Even though we had to live uh, with a pandemic as important as COVID-19 pandemic for half of that period, Angola's people have been able to see the many new things brought up during this mandate, and that has only one meaning. The MPLA is a serious party, said Jao Lorenzo, president of the Republic of Angola. Jao Lorenzo closed the last mass act, as they call it, here in Angola, calling his supporters to vote. Uh, in his speech, he listed decisions taken by his government over the last five years without attacking his opponents. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding uh, this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency, uh, which was founded in January of 1998, has uh, published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.com. Dot blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to uh, the program today, uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, August 21st, uh, 2022, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our Black August commemoration programming for uh, this episode.
years old, y'all. Mama took me to school. Listen to me. Things were so tough back then, y'all. I had to wear my dad's old broken shoes. <laughs> Welcome back, and uh, that's how I feel. That's how we feel. Uh, that was the Soul Clan, uh, the classic soul sound of uh, Joe Tex, uh, Arthur Conley, uh, Solomon Burke, uh, Don Covey, and others. And you're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, this special edition of our program uh, for Sunday, August 21st, uh, 2022, and today. Uh, is the 51st anniversary of the martyrdom or, of George L. Jackson. It occurred on August 21st, 1971, at San Quentin uh, Prison. And uh, we're going to focus, as part of our Black August programming, on the lifetimes and contributions uh, of George Jackson. And uh, let's listen uh, to this report. Good evening. I'm Belva Davis. Welcome to the world premiere of Day of the Gun. As a television journalist reporting on the explosive events of the 1970s, I saw firsthand the fierce and prolonged struggle which engulfed America and the Bay Area. I covered the free speech movement in Berkeley, the emergence of the Black Panther Party, the anger, protest, and riots of the anti-war movement. Those were dangerous and fearful times. One of the most brutal moments occurred at San Quentin Prison in August of 1971, when inmate, revolutionary George Jackson, obtained a gun behind prison walls. The consequences were deadly. To this day, it remains a story filled with mystery and suspicion. Because tonight's special contains graphic pictures and descriptions of violent events, viewer discretion is advised. Now, Cron 4 presents Day of the Gun. In spite of all, I am human and have done things that require forgiveness from others. I have transgressed against my fellows in moments of weakness and madness. I hope I can make it. George Jackson. In the fall of 1970, George Jackson skyrocketed to international fame with the publication of his book, Soledad Brother the prison letters of George Jackson. By the next year, he was dead. George Jackson served a life sentence, which turned out to be a death sentence, for a $70 robbery. The story of George Jackson is a story of the dark side of America. 
In August of 1971, when Jackson was a 29-year-old inmate at California's San Quentin Prison, he became the central figure in the prison's bloodiest day. Jackson obtained a gun. And in less than 30 minutes, a murderous rampage turned the adjustment center into a slaughterhouse. Six men, including Jackson, were killed. It was unprecedented. It had never, ever happened before. It's never happened again. During his prison life, George Jackson was a polarizing figure, hated as much as he was loved. He was a threat in the prison system. He was one that just didn't seem to be very afraid. He was defiant, he was proud, he was a revolutionary. George Jackson was a thug. My guess is that he stole lunch money from his grade school uh, associates. He educated himself and emerged as the most uh, powerful intellectual within the prison system. He was a punk convict until he was catapulted into the spotlight. Once in the limelight, I think he, he rose above punk convict, but I think he never rose above opportunist. In the end, when George Jackson's cause had been lost and the cult of hero worship contaminated his heart and soul, Jackson sought comfort in a few loyal friends, Marx, Lenin, and Ho Chi Minh, the Vietnamese revolutionary who predicted when the prison gates fly open, the dragons will emerge. On a hot August day, with gun in hand, Jackson would tell the world just that. of George Jackson came at a time when America's soul and its people were coming apart. That this is uh, his revolution. We will not be fooled. The turbulent decades of the 1960s and 70s merged as one. The country's democratic institutions were severely challenged. Some advocated revolution. I'm going to start right now to inform white people of what they don't know. The black people in this country have been the victims of violence at the hands of the white man for 400 years. I think it's un-American. We cannot survive if we go fight some yellow man in Vietnam who ain't never called us nigger. People had marched, people had gone to jail, people were very frustrated and very angry. The unpopular war in Vietnam had become the longest and most divisive in American history. 
The bitter struggle for civil rights confirmed the failed promise of equality for all. We'd been confined to the ghetto for years and years and years. We'd not been allowed to break out of the ghetto. Riots turned American cities into burning embers. The political assassinations of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert Kennedy deepened the country's paranoia. We were being uh, uh, put in a position of having to feel that our lives were under, under the gun, under the gun. Huey P. Newton and the Black Panther Party wanted justice beyond the streets of Oakland. There were, I suppose, those who felt that all one needed to do was to take up the gun and that that would be the, the path toward freedom. The prisons of California had become a target for revolutionary change as well. The new left viewed the growing convict population as symptomatic of the country's deeper social ills. We've got the militant blacks, the militant uh, Nazis, the militant uh, Chicanos. They're all here under one roof, and we are sitting on this lid like a, uh, like a tea kettle waiting for this, the steam to either come up or the lid to blow off. Inmates were championed as political prisoners, vanguards of the coming revolution, victims of their fascist capitalist oppressors. As long as there is any political prisoner in this country, as long as anyone is being discriminated against, None of us are free. When George Jackson emerged as the new god and leader of the left, those on the right saw him as the most powerful threat in the prison system. I think racism is a control device, control mechanism. Create an atmosphere whereby they can control the image, control the image. And black is just a continuation of the same thing we've been going through on the street. George Jackson was born in Chicago in 1941, one of five children in a poor working class family. His mother, Georgia, was afraid of what the streets could do to him. She wouldn't let him go out and play. She kept him on the roof. You know, she wouldn't let him go out because she didn't want him to get in trouble. I used to tell them that they were black. And in order to achieve, they'd have to be twice as good as white. I said, if you're twice as good as the white in school, then maybe you'll make Okay. Yes, that's what I used to tell him. It was the truth. So why hide it from As a young boy at Catholic school, Jackson experienced racism. The playground was for white kids only. Growing up in the projects, he became involved in petty crime, fighting, stealing. At age 15, his parents moved to L.A. and they settled in the Watts district where he began to be involved in a little bit more serious crime, stealing a motorbike, breaking and entering. In 1958, he was convicted of a store burglary uh, and sent to CYA, California Youth Authority camp, for several months. He escaped, fled back to Chicago, was involved in a knifing, came back to California in chains. After spending time locked up in the California Youth Authority, Jackson graduated to state prison when he pled guilty to the robbery of a Bakersfield gas station. It was 1961. Jackson was 19 years old, and he received the indeterminate sentence of one year to life. Well, I was incarcerated under a one to life. 
a term they call for one to life. Where I, I could have done one year and been released. I've done ten. That's more time than anybody in the state has ever done on one to life. According to fellow inmate James Carr, when the two became leaders of a gang known as the Wolf Pack, much of their time was spent in the usual convict hustles. Gambling, booze, sex, blackmail. He knew how to play the game. He was a tough guy. He studied martial arts. He was, you know, strong, very muscular, very smart, very cunning guy. Good behavior dictated Jackson's chance for parole. It became non-existent. Prison records indicate that he received over 40 disciplinary actions. Jackson spent seven years in solitary. He was a big guy. He was a tough guy. He was, he was a predator when he was in the general population. He, he was a predator of other inmates. He, he, he just abused people. He became a professional uh, prisoner, uh, a real dyed-in-the-wool con convict. And then he started reading um, revolutionary theory. Then he, be, he started reading Marx and Lenin and Mao. And he wrote, I read Marx and Lenin and Mao and they redeemed me. All of a sudden, he had a context for his anger. He realized, you know, why he was there, why people of his, of his race, of his um, working class background, why they were in prison in disproportionate numbers. And that was the appeal of George Jackson. He represented in the most, in the highest way, uh, the injustice of the system and the cruelty and the institutionalized racism of the system. up on Day of the Gun, inmate killings at Soledad Prison begins a chain of revenge and murder. We now return to Cron 4 Presents Day of the Gun. This program contains graphic pictures and descriptions of violent events. Viewer discretion is advised. We die too easily. We forgive and forget too easily. Gentle and refined people, aren't we? We'll make good communists if someone deals with the fascists for us. In January of 1970, George Jackson was one of more than 2,000 inmates at Soledad Prison. Jackson had been here before. Located 100 miles south of San Francisco, the prison was in the heart of the fertile Salinas Valley, the salad bowl of America, the place where famed author John Steinbeck wrote eloquently of the dispossessed. When Soledad opened in 1951, it was the model for the California prison system, a showplace for reform. By the next decade, that hope had vanished. Well, it was... Gladiator school. Of course, you had your gangs, you had your AB, Aryan Brotherhood, had your black, your BGF, your black guerrilla families, had the Mexican Mafia. Soledad, Soledad was a racist pit. It was a horrible, horrible place. I mean, the guards set the prisoners against each other. You know, there were conspiracies everywhere. There were stabbings. There were 
There were murders. The guards were the enemy, the number one enemy, because they were killing both of us. And George was trying to explain this to a lot of guys. They couldn't get it to their heads. Alan Mancino has spent much of his life behind bars, beginning as a teenager in the California Youth Authority. Like George Jackson, Mancino was from Los Angeles. Though the barrier of race allowed him to know Jackson only by reputation, the circumstance of their prison lives would crisscross in moments brutal and vicious, from Soledad to the tragedy at San Quentin. The administration had him down as a troublemaker, as an instigator and agitator. He wasn't. He wasn't into the racial stuff. I'll say that about it. I went through all the processes. I tried to get out. Uh, I went to school, program, but now on the side, I was studying uh, things that I felt that would help the community. George Jackson was a prisonized, uh, tough, uh, sometimes brutal prison gangster. And this prisonized toughness made him the best uh, proselytizer for revolution on the yard. At Soledad, the charismatic Jackson conducted secret political study groups with other inmates trying to unify the prisoner class. He was an internationalist. He identified with international communist solidarity. And one of the projects he took on was that of transforming um, those who were behind bars to move away from what he called a criminal mentality to a revolutionary mentality. And then he had to the capabilities of mobilizing everybody. You know, if he said, hey, we're going to do this here, we do this here. And then when they saw this kind of power that could come from one person, naturally they feared that. On the morning of January 13, 1970, a new exercise yard was opened at Soledad's notorious O-Wing. The prison grapevine had long predicted that a fight between black and white inmates would occur. Revenge was the motive because of the previous racial killings of blacks. I would say the majority of people in Soledad knew that when the new exercise yard was open, that there would be uh, a fight out there. At around 9 a.m., a racially mixed group of inmates began entering the yard. W.L. Nolan, a prison boxing champion, and Jackson's closest political ally was among them. And we said, well, get on the court, the basketball court. Everyone pick your man. When everyone's set, then we'll do it. The guard in the tower was O.G. Miller, white, 51 years old, known to be an expert with a rifle. Miller's background was similar to that of other guards, ex-military, from a southern state, known to inmates as a racist. He was, he was gonna shoot somebody black. If it was a fight out there on the yard or somewhere, he wasn't gonna shoot his kind. He was gonna shoot the other guy. The fight started when Nolan threw the first punch at a white inmate. Others quickly joined the battle. As soon as they started scuffling, uh, shots rang out. Without warning, Officer Miller fired his weapon at the inmates. Nolan was the first one shot. Uh, he was shot uh, through the chest uh, on the first 
bullet off of a 30 caliber, very high-powered rifle. He was shot right in the heart. It was straight-up murder. A second, a second, then a third shot fired, hitting two other black inmates. Both would bleed to death. A white inmate had also been wounded. And even Billy Harris, the one who really hated blacks, uh, said that we thought we were just going to fight. Nobody really get killed. We get, you know, maybe some bruises and head bashing, but that'd be it. Three days later, on January 16th, the Monterey County Grand Jury ruled the killings justifiable homicide. There was just a, a thickness of anger and, and a sense of injustice that had occurred. You just didn't kill us like that. And then dudes were saying, like, damn, we dying. Why, why are we dying by ourselves? And that was the attitude that everybody, you know. Not long after the ruling had been announced, outrage turned into retribution. At around six... Welcome back. And uh, we're listening to a tribute uh, to uh, George Jackson. And, of course, uh, today represents the 51st anniversary of the assassination uh, of uh, George L. Jackson. And, of course, uh, we're uh, reviewing a lot of uh, the developments uh, which took place uh, during uh, that particular time period. We want to go back uh, and listen uh, to some more uh, audio files on this period.
looking through the uh, spectator side of the courtroom, saw a tall, light-complected Negro with bushy hair turning a handgun at the back of the neck of Lieutenant Dixon of St. Clinton Correctional Force. Uh, everybody hit the floor except some of the lady jurors. Uh, this stranger came forward and passed the handgun to the defendant, McLean, who put the gun on Judge Haley. The uh, intervener withdrew from the bag, a large bag, an automatic rifle, covered all the correction of personnel, and at gunpoint they were forced to unshackle the witness McGee, who had been on the witness stand. McGee was then armed too. And I think it was McGee who was sent to the holding cell to liberate the three remaining witnesses who were under guard in the holding cell. That's, uh, during this time, uh, Judge Haley called Sheriff Montanus by phone, and uh, the defendant McLean was at his side when the telephone call was being made. The judge said, we have four dangerous men in the courtroom, fully armed. We have the courtroom under subjection. We do not want any, any interference here at this time in order that we do not jeopardize any lives. There's still a great many loose ends and a great deal of speculation about what happened here. Investigators will now try to determine if there was a conspiracy of some kind that involved perhaps more persons than those who actually participated in the bloody event. Investigators say militant organizations such as the Black Panther Party will be high on the list of inquiry. The suspect that was on the stand got up, walked over to one of the San Quentin guards, who by this time were all lying on the ground. There were five, five guards in the room, yeah. and uh, told one of them to get up. Uh, I think the suspect's name was McKenna, or the one who was testifying was McKenna. He said, uh, you've held me in San Quentin for X number of years. Uh, I was unjustly accused. Uh, now, for the love of God, take these cuffs off of me. I want to be a free man. There was discussion about taking the two older women, myself, and the baby that was in the courtroom. They uh, abducted a young couple walking by outside with a small child about 18 months old. And uh, McLean uh, kept saying, leave the bailiff alone, he's all right. Uh, right. They started using piano wire on some of the people. I don't know how many. Um, the judge told him everything would be all right. They called the sheriff, they talked to the sheriff. The judge called the sheriff. Talk to the sheriff. Right. And McLean got on the um, uh, got on the phone and told the sheriff to call all his dog pigs off, or uh, they were going to kill everybody in the courtroom. They had an automatic weapon, and he just opened up and he could listen to it.
contusions, some abrasions, some lacerations. There were those who suffered from uh, one fracture of the fourth metacarpal bone of the right hand, and according to the warden's testimony, this fracture was acquired prior to the events of last Saturday. There were no signs of injuries that could be as recent as having occurred in the last 36 hours. This, I believe, is a objective statement of my findings as one interested in a medical statement of conditions as I observed at the institution. I'm a lay person. I'm not a physician. But there were contusions. There were bruises. Uh, uh, it was obvious that, uh, you know, some, uh, that, that people had been struck. There was no question about that. Rochelle McGee hurt? Uh, Rochelle McGee is one of the people that uh, also has bruises and, and contusions. approved today 43 new positions for San Quentin. And this, they're to be utilized at the discretion of the, uh, in terms of new programming that will go on here, too. And I can't describe that to you other than the, then uh, it'll be evolved over a period of time with the input from the staff that to make this place safe and the warden is free to use those 43 positions. And we did this through, uh, uh, and, and they came to me by uh, by virtue of the staff and the employees groups and the employees all along the line suggesting that's, in the, that's the amount of staff and of the new program it will take to make this place safe. Have there been any resignations? I don't think there was a real threat, but we got some of the damnedest people you've ever seen in your life working in corrections, and they got plenty of guts. So some of them resigned, and I don't fault them for resigning. A lot of people were talking about it, and I don't blame them for talking about it. But in the final analysis, they're not going to abandon the ship when it's uh, rocking a little bit. and we were permitted maybe five minutes in each wing. There are two wings inside with 17 cells in each of the two wings, and we were at liberty to walk up and down and talk to the prisoners, and they talked to us, but we were limited in the time we could spend. Uh, we could see all of the prisoners in their cells, those that were occupied. There were some indications, physical indications of bruises, uh, impossible, of course, to tell how, how they got the bruises. What did you uh, learn that you didn't know when you walked in there? Not a heck of a lot. what I saw at Solidarity. As a matter of fact, I saw some of the same faces 
here that I saw in Soledad. The same men. We are going to request that a joint committee of inquiry be sent here from the legislation. We're going to, to ask the, uh, the chairman of the Rules Committee on the Senate side, who will do that appointing, and the Speaker of the Assembly on our side, uh, to appoint a joint committee to come here and investigate the incidents of August the 21st and thereafter. And I think um, the only thing we can expect to get out of that are the facts. Now, if the facts have to be on the side of the guard, so be it. If they're on the side of the inmates, so be it. But let's stop all the business of not finding out what the facts are and telling people you can't go in here and you can't go there as if to hide something. Yet a third group of persons toured San Quentin's Adjustment Center today. Several members of the Marin County Grand Jury went through the facility asking the same basic question. What happened here on the 21st day of August? Mike Mills reporting for Newswatch. I've seen go to work and then I've seen come home and I had no doubt to fear as uh, I don't think my children did either. And uh, like a room and we just wanted to relax and really had no too many pressures and just I think maybe the last couple of months when things got just a little bit tense. He would come home and say that so and so was contracted on. It was happened to be a very good friend of his. That means that he's marked for death. Right. And they were going to get him next. And then uh, each time an officer got killed, I think what really started up was the last one was Leo Davis. Yes. And then I think the tenseness then got a little bit worse. Well, everybody gets their chance to speak, but uh, with all this mail that I have received, numerous letters from all over the United States, I don't think there's one that hasn't missed, uh, feel the same as I do, that there's not enough in the papers about people, say, like my husband or any other officer, that you pick up, it's either Angela Davis or... Um, for their brothers or the comrades or building these people up. You mentioned letters you've received. Very numerous. And uh, they're beautiful letters. People who are concerned. Can you tell me about some of them? I have received two letters from prisoners who thought very highly of my husband. They could communicate with him and uh, explain to the prisoner himself or they were wrong, how they could improve themselves, and they turned out to be very good friends. I also received a letter from a black man saying he was a little ashamed to his brethren, that he says, believe me, the majority of us aren't that way, and he says, I'm ashamed of what has happened. Welcome back. And those were uh, the sounds of uh, the aftermath of the assassination uh, of Jonathan Jackson on August 7th of 1970, and also uh, the martyrdom of George Jackson uh, one year and two weeks later on August 21st of 1971, some 51 years ago today. And uh, the whole atmosphere that existed uh, in uh, the latter part of 1970 and early 1971 uh, was clearly uh, one 
of defiance and rebellion as related to the existence of political prisoners and an attack uh, on the part of the movement of the entire prison industrial complex from the police, the prosecutor's offices, the judges, all the way to the guards and the wardens and the state administrations in regard to correctional facilities. In uh, April of 1971, uh, Tony Brown, uh, who uh, was originally from the city of Detroit, uh, was at that time uh, the host of uh, Black Journal, a national public affairs program. A whole segment, uh, an entire episode of that program in April of 1971 uh, was dedicated to explaining uh, the background in regard to the Solidaire Brothers, uh, Angela Davis, uh, who, of course, uh, had been targeted and arrested and charged uh, with conspiracy to the martyrdom of Jonathan Jackson in Marin County on August 7th of 1970. Let's listen to this report. Inside these walls of San Quentin Penitentiary are perhaps three of the most well-known prisoners in recent history. They're called the Soldad Brothers. And not too far from here, in another penal institution, is Professor Angela Davis, who has also been in the public eye. Of the 23,900 prisoners in California's 12 state prisons, 30% of them are black. Nationally, there are about 400,000 inmates, and close to one-third are non-white. In an effort to shed some light on how black people are affected by the correctional and judicial institutions, Black Journal spoke to those involved with Angela Davis and the Soldad Brothers, inmates in San Quentin and Soldad prisons, and lawyers, families, and friends of some of those who consider themselves political prisoners. Substantiation for what goes on in a prison is very difficult. This is not a vindication of what has taken place and this is not a vindication of crime per se. It is an attempt to find out what the penal institution and the correctional systems as an institution are doing to rehabilitate those that society has judged to be wrong. Angela Davis, 
labeled by the press the black militant female communist, worked actively to free the Soldad brothers and what she felt were other black political prisoners. She was dismissed from her teaching position at UCLA for political activity, which the university labeled subversive. She gained international attention in October 1970 during an intensive two-month nationwide FBI hunt. She was arrested and charged with murder, kidnapping, and allegedly conspiring with 17-year-old Jonathan Jackson to purchase guns for use in a California courthouse shootout in which Jackson and three others were killed. The courts refused bail amid protests from thousands who rallied to her defense, shouting of her innocence and chanting, Free Angela. The signs of a conspiracy are cropping up. A conspiracy whose present goal appears to be the destruction of the very possibility of education in this state. Now, I think it's significant, as I said before, that the regents chose me as a target of their attack. I think it's symbolic because black members of the Communist Party are far, far from being the only black people who are beginning to see that this society must be thoroughly transformed if we're going to solve these basic problems. All over the country, black people, Chicanos, white people, everybody, I think, is waking up to this. I think we have to establish some priorities. We have to ask ourselves whether we're going to make an effort now towards individual fulfillment or whether we're going to wage a fight for a more humane society whether we're going to create a strong defensive against what may very well become an era of fascism. Brother Singleton, what does Angela Davis mean to you? I think she means to me what... Um, well, the way I feel about Angela right now is the way I think all black people have felt throughout history when they've seen their sisters and mothers being taken off and raped. But with her case, I feel even worse because I know there's a black man that she's being victimized for things that I should be doing. You know, like uh, everybody knows there's genocide in the jails. It took a, you know, a small girl like her to stand up and say that it's wrong and something needs to be done about it. And because she has said something, now they're trying to trump up charges and, and put her behind, put her behind uh, well, just wipe her out, really, is what it is. Uh, do you think Angela was uh, dangerous enough to be considered one of the ten most wanted people in, in the country? No, I think that's a distortion. Same kind of distortion that emerged around the case around here where they said, you know, she was just a, uh, you know, a crazy radical who was on campus and who would come to, you know, um, indoctrinate students with, you know, all kinds of other beliefs about politics and about society. What would she like to work with? Really great. She's a really great teacher. If, and anyone you talk to will really tell you that. Really a lot of enthusiasm for the kind of things that she studied and, and for, you know, making sure that people learn things, actually learn things, and, and, and got a chance to really think creatively and critically about the kind of things that they were dealing with. It's been said that Angela is a political prisoner. What is a political prisoner? Well, to my understanding, there are two kinds of political prisoners. There are those uh, political prisoners who are protesters, uh, whose politics and activities are... Uh, anti what the uh, American capitalist system thinks is, is apropos. Uh, and then there's other kinds of political prisoners which are, to me, black brothers and sisters who were just caught up in not being able to make a, a living in American society so uh, that you have a situation. You have Angela Davis and you have Mich Michelle McGee. 
her co-defendant in this case. Both of them are political prisoners. What they're doing to her is an exaggerated form of what happens every day to black people in this country. And they're saying to those communities through her that, you know, people have to straighten up and fly right and be good niggas, you know, and that they cannot, you know, challenge the system. And that's what Angela Davis is doing. Now, you know, the, the question of, 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 of uh, who is going to be the next in this long list of political prisoners is really the important one. All we can do now is just uh, either band together and do something about it or, or just forget about Angela and start thinking about what we're going to do about the next leader to stand up. What can we do? I think the first thing we have to do is, is certainly make sure that we, we do have some unity in the black community so that when a sister like that stands up, that they don't wipe her out as one person, that they have to wipe out more than one person. Why did she run? Yeah, that's... And, uh, and also, why did, why did she stay in the country? Right. Well, see, I think Angela's answered that by saying that to have given herself up at the time uh, that the warrant was issued for her would have been tantamount to putting her head on the executioner's block. And I think what, what she means by that is that there was such a hysteria in this country, I mean, in, in the whole country, but especially in California, that as soon as the, the events in San Rafael took place, the next thing you hear, Andrew Davis buys guns, you know. Andrew Davis implicated in the Sam Rafael incident and the massive headlines day after day after day. And so that her escape had to be planned day to day. And it wasn't well planned because there were no plans beforehand. And so everything that she did was done day to day. I mean, the press that was used against her, I mean, her picture was on the cover of every magazine, wanted posters. I mean, and, and like putting her on the 10 most wanted list was like a, a license for any crazed racist to shoot her on sight. And I'm sure that they would have accepted that had, you know, had that happened. There would have been no outcry if, if somebody had shot her, you know. Um, and there just was no way for her to escape. Angela is indeed a symbol. You know, when, um, when the President of the United States goes on nationwide television before, what, 22 million people, and uh, in, after signing the crime control bill and handing it to Hoover and to Mitchell and says, let this serve as a warning to Angela Davis and all other terrorists. When, when the President of the United States, you know, virtually convicts somebody with one sentence before they're even tried, I think you begin to understand what she means. She threatens their whole way of life, their whole profit motive, their, their determination to continue the war in Vietnam and to continue killing black people. Some people represent the struggle physically and others represent it vocally. Uh, Angela Davis is a spokeswoman for the struggle. Uh, therefore, whatever she does is more emphasized than what the average person would do. And uh, Angela Davis is not only a person, again, she's a principal and an image that black people use and emulate and can hold up in some esteem as an example of black womanhood. Well, uh, do you agree that the image that Angela Davis projects should be esteemed by other black women? The image that she projects as a revolutionary in the sense of wanting to perpetuate and promote change, I think is good. The only thing that I disagree with is that the use of a foreign ideology, and when I say foreign ideology, what I'm talking about is a commitment to communism. Communism? And, and people like myself or Angela who joined the Communist Party, 
I think basically what, what we're doing is we're saying that the system is rotten at its core, that the system itself has to be changed, that we, you know, while we fight for, for the immediate needs of the people constantly and continually, better housing, you know, the end of police brutality, uh, stopping the, the, the depression level of unemployment in the black community, that while we continue to do those kinds of things, we do know, in fact, that the system itself creates those conditions. And, and that the changing of those conditions basically means uh, establishing a, a socialist society. And that's, that's what I think we're talking about when we say we are communists. And we're also saying that we, we need, we think we need a, a, a party that is partisan to, to stopping those conditions, that a party that that organizes other people in order to change the society. You can't talk about a political struggle until you have first given people a value system from which to operate. So we're saying the first struggle is the struggle to win the minds of the people. And to win the minds of the people, that has to be done through a value system, through a total lifestyle, a total ideology. That has to be developed by that people in order to liberate themselves. Talking about that left-wing takeover, or white people co-opting our leaders, or co-opting our images, I think the case of Bobby Seale is an exemplary one in that in the beginning there was a Chicago 8 and all of a sudden it became Chicago 7 and it just so happened that the Chicago 7 were all white boys and uh, shall we say they gained their fame at the expense of Bobby Seale. More, matter, matter of fact, I saw a book just the other day by Abby Hoffman uh, and the title of the book said Chicago 8. Now the 8 was crossed out and over top of the 8 they had 7 and a picture of Bobby Seale gagged and bound in the courtroom. Now, to me, that's like exactly what it's all about. It's all about co-opting your people, co-opting your leaders, when you do not have an ideology that you develop and that fits your particular situation. So when people talk about communism, like I said before, that's just another ism that was created and written by white boys who were neither concerned about nor understood the problems of black people. Beyond everything, she's still my sister, and I want her to survive. When dealing with Angela, we must take under consideration another brother here that needs the help of the community off the bat, and that's Rochelle McGee. It seems like all of the attention has been focused just on Angela, which she's a beautiful sister, and she has uh, attorneys from all corners of the world, you know. But uh, I think it's time that the community really look at a true revolutionary and someone that was trying to do something for black people as a whole, and not only for black people, but for other oppressed people of the world to show them what the system is made of. And I think that the community should come to his aid. Also, what we are forgetting about is Bobby Seale. <clears throat> Bobby Seale is fighting for his life back on the East Coast. Nobody even mentioned him no more. They forgot about him. The brothers in prison, period. We all held down, you understand? In other words, we're all political prisoners. I feel that as a lawyer, my obligation is to use my talents in my people's struggle. Uh, we are now uh, emphasizing Angela Davis because she is in the public eye. She's getting a lot of attention through media and because of the drama connected with the events. You have a legal right to buy guns. The only requirement is that you comply with the applicable state and federal laws. She uh, complied with those laws. There's no law against supporting the Soledad brothers. There's no law against uh, petitioning, uh, picketing, 
uh, and speaking about the injustices to all black political prisoners throughout the United States. As a matter of fact, you have a constitutional right to do that. I mean, there's no reason why uh, every man who goes to court couldn't have a lawyer of his choice, a lawyer who's competent. Uh, there's no reason why a man has to remain in jail because he's unable to post bond. There's no reason why a man uh, should face, go to trial in a court of law when he has not had the benefit of an investigation by trained investigators or he hasn't had access, access to scientific uh, and expert advice uh, in his defense. Uh, but it's a conscious political decision uh, not for, for people not to have that. And uh, this is more common. It's more regular, more routine when it comes to black people. Therefore, all black people, wherever they are, whatever their crimes, even crimes against other blacks, they are political prisoners because the political system has dealt with them differently than it has dealt with white. Whites get the benefit of every law, every loophole. Whites get the benefit of being judged by their peers, by other white people. Blacks don't get that benefit of any such uh, jury trial. A uh, jury trial is almost a cinch to result in the conviction of a black person. Judges send people to prison. They've never been to prison in their life. Send a man to prison for 20 years and have no idea what a prison looks like and perhaps don't care. And judges who are supposed to be the guardians of the law out golfing, work two days a week, uh, sometimes work two or three hours a day, and things of that sort. Uh, we could get rid of all that and have courts that uh, actually take place in the community. For example, in a large uh, housing project uh, in, in Chicago. Chicago is a good example because it looks as though they must have 50, 11 miles of projects in Chicago. Why should they have to go downtown to the Cook County uh, Courthouse for justice? Why can't the people in the housing project have their own court and decide who should be fined for assault and battery, uh, who should be fined for stealing uh, uh, radio or television, who should be uh, 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 fined, who should be punished, and what the punishment should be for urinating in the hallways and things that people do? I mean, why should this judicial power that rightly belongs to the people be administered solely from one location downtown um, uh, in the Cook County Courthouse or in some precinct courthouse. I mean, why can't the people themselves uh, administer this power? For many blacks, it's an endless cycle, a judicial system which is very often unjust, a prison system which many times does not rehabilitate, and then released into the outside world where the same conditions that sent them to prison await them. In some areas of this country, as many as 75% of former prisoners end up in prison again. The Seven Step Foundation, an organization founded by ex-convicts to help keep themselves and other ex-convicts out of jail, also brings attention to conditions inside prison. There are quite a number of problems. I'd say the main problem would be uh, discrimination and racism and the fact that there are no real rehabilitational type factors involved in, inside the penal institution. In other words, you go to, you go to eat at a certain time, uh, they provide, provide you with clean laundry, you're told to get up, stand up, line up, shut up, and lock up. This is social regimentation. They uh, take a person out of society and you ship them off 20 or 30 miles away from where they're accustomed to living 
and they're involved in this social regimentation, then you release them with the hope that they've been rehabilitated and they can come out and become useful and decent citizens of our community, which is an impossibility. Uh, prison guards have been known to make homosexuals out of young men. Uh, they'll put them in a cell with a known homosexual maker, and the young man has to fight for himself. And many times he might end up killing the person, or he might be killed himself. This is the type of tyranny and intimidation that goes on inside prison. Ken, what prison were you in? What was that? Uh, Quentin, Soledad, and Chino. Uh, you hear that San Quentin is the is the hellhole, so to speak, of the uh, California correctional system. But basically, and actually, it isn't. Soledad is. It's a, a place that uh, everything is inside. It's all built off of a long hall. And the hall is so long that you stand at one end and you can't even see the other end and have wings off of it. And there's 3,000 men there and uh, they don't have to go outside for anything and they're all there on each other's nerves. Brothers' case in the prison itself probably can be said to have started on January 13, 1970. At that time, uh, for the first time in months, they decided that they would put both black and white prisoners together in a small exercise yard. This had not occurred for many, many, many months. And they turned them out after skin searching each of these men to make absolutely certain they had no weapons of any kind, one at a time, one white, one black, one white, one black, into a small exercise yard. Prior to that time, they had posted on the wall uh, the guard in the prison who was the most expert marksman. He had a high-powered rifle. And the very thing that anyone could have anticipated did happen. Uh, some kind of a scuffle broke out. He fired four times. Uh, at the end, one white had been nicked with a bullet. Uh, three black men were dead. Um, the district attorney very shortly thereafter announced that he was sure a grand jury would find it was justifiable homicide and sure enough, it took exactly three days for a jury to come out with it, that kind of a conclusion. Uh, that news of the grand jury decision that it was justifiable homicide and nothing, no action would be taken against the guard uh, came out over the radio and television and into the prison. 
and approximately 30 minutes later, this guard was found dead, for which the Soledad brothers had been accused of murder. Um, now, the interesting thing is that the prison immediately tabbed it a retaliatory act and said that it was in retaliation for the murder of the three blacks. Now, following that, several months later in July, yet another guard was killed, and now there are seven more blacks that have been charged, and they've been charged with killing this guard. Uh, again, the prison has tabbed this a retaliatory act. Uh, how are the Soledad brothers political prisoners? They uh, had been very active in the liberation struggle of black people. They believe black people to be among other people oppressed in this country and have actively worked towards their liberation. So, like George Jackson, one of the Soledad Three Brothers, each time he goes up for before the parole board, he is denied for no reason. But um, this has been because of his political activity, which he has continued inside the prison. George Jackson is an extremely political human being. He's a revolutionary in the finest and, and greatest tradition of the word. He is a man who came into the prison when he was 18 uh, over a very minor kind of an alleged crime where there was no violence of any kind. Uh, his parents hired a lawyer uh, who told him to plead guilty after talking with him about 10 minutes, said he would get him a light sentence. George wound up uh, in the state penitentiary rather than in a county jail with a, in fact, light sentence. He's been there 10 years. Uh, the other two men are two men who have not been in prison as long. Um, they're, they're, they're fine men. Um, Fleeta Drumgo was due to go before a parole board in May and with every expectation that he would have a parole date set and he would be released. John Cluchet actually had a parole date set and he was to be released in April. Now, this incident having started January of 1970. These three men are very solid, they're very solidly together and they're all totally innocent. Well, it's impossible for them to have a fair trial. Like, some of the things that have happened so far indicates this. Like, when we go into court, their judge, the judge who presided over their last hearings, I mean, like in his opening remarks to the group of people who were in the courtroom in support of the brothers, was that uh, he wanted to remind us that we were in a court of law and not at some pool hall or a barbecue table. This was directed to the black people who were in the courtroom, members of their family and friends. How strong is the uh, state's case against them? Well, the state in this situation has allegedly some 12 or 13, 14 witnesses who supposedly are going to testify that these individuals committed the crime. I can assure you there are going to be a great number of others who are going to testify contrawise, namely that they couldn't have uh, committed the crime because it happened up on the third floor and these men were not up on the third floor. Um, it's going to be a, a difficult case because there's a determination to see that they are convicted. Uh, what kind of things are being done to see that they're convicted? Well, one of the problems that we've run into as far as the case itself is concerned is that immediately following uh, the charge being brought against these three men, many of the prisoners that were in the wing where this alleged crime occurred were moved to other prisons throughout the state of California. 
this makes it very difficult because we have to travel throughout the state and try to contact these individuals and find out what they do know and what evidence that they can give as far as the case is concerned. You were at Soledad when the uh, three prisoners were killed in the courtyard. What kind of conditions existed at that time? Mainly what created that incident was uh, social attitudes, you know, that uh, certain type of correctional officer has that's employed there in uh, Soledad. And uh, they're dealing with angry young men that, uh, well, to give you an example, you cage a lion and you start poking at him with a stick, he eventually is going to growl back at you and try to try to attack you. And in there you're dealing with human beings. And it was a situation that it was inevitable that it, it happened and it's going to happen again too. try to uh, uh, go out and help my people, you know, that's what I'm trying to do now in here. How do you spend your day here? I work in the gymnasium, you know, I just sweep, mop, you know, lift weights, recreation things. You're not taking any trades? No, well, I was told when I first got up here that I was dangerous and I was militant and uh, they didn't want to let me in any kind of trade. So I, I, was, uh, I stayed locked down for about six months when I first got up here. And then uh, they finally let me get a job in the gym, but they told me I couldn't get anything else. They told me the bakery had a, a year waiting list. So I went to board, and board, you know, they're going to let me get a transfer now. But uh, it's cold up here, bro. You know, I mean, uh, I'm getting oppressed all kind of ways. We every, every step we try to make to advance ourselves is, uh, is contrary to them. Uh, we we racist. You know, we revolutionaries because of what we believe. You know, I mean, that's what they're trying to do is stomp out our beliefs. You know, they want us to advance no kind of way. What kind of changes you want to see inside the prison? I want to see the whole thing change. I mean, the whole administration. I think they should get people who are qualified to work here. I mean, people with college education who can uh, understand, you know, understand people. More brothers. I mean, it's a cutback. We just had a state meeting. It's a cutback on our black counselors now who's supposed to come in and counsel us, you know. It's a cutback on our legal materials. It's a cutback on everything. What about you, brother? Well, uh, see, it's all type of forms of intimidation that they use against people here to repress their ideas and thoughts. Uh, just for thinking, you know, if you think in a positive manner, uh, it's a danger to the security of this institution, which uh, they're going to take some type of action behind you for this alone. Uh, today they just shook the brother's house down for black material, black literature, uh, dealing with just plain articles, you know. We're not allowed to uh, voice our opinions. I was locked in the hole for a poem I wrote, you know. I was denied a year at the board for a poem I wrote. This is all because of the way I think, because of my ideas. You know, and they're very, they're, they're frightened that uh, the black man here 
in the jail, we'll get together and try to do something to change his condition. You think you have you have any um, problems because you gave this interview? <laughs> well, brother, I really don't know. Like I said, uh, I always expect the worst and hope for the best. Me, because like I said, I was locked down for a poem I wrote, you know. So behind this interview, it's not no telling what might happen. Letters from prisoners and pressures from the Soldad Brothers Defense Committee led to an investigation by a caucus of black California legislators on conditions inside Soldad Prison. Chairman of the Black Caucus is State Senator Mervyn Dimely. We found that there was a great deal of racism at Soledad, that there was a great deal of discrimination against uh, blacks, and that some of the white guards had deliberately uh, perpetuated this system of in racial inequality at the prison system. <clears throat> that the men had complained that urine was put in their food and in some instances glass, and that they had been subject to a great deal of racial slurs and inhuman treatment. And uh, this was perpetuated by developing a system of white class uh, status, where you find white, most of the whites get on the better jobs and blacks get in very menial jobs. This, in addition to that, we heard, actually heard in this, you know, uh, blacks, the whites calling the blacks number of names in our presence there hollering all through the the, uh, sec the uh, security section of the um, prison. The guards are mostly men who come back from the service, men who served in the military police or the uh, special police forces. So there are a number of ex-servicemen, many of whom come from southern states. Um, these guards are inadequately trained. They are paid very, very low salaries. See, a prisoner has no way now of filing a complaint. There's no way of processing a grievance. And so if he is deliberately discriminated against, and we have evidence of this, there's no way he can regress, redress his grievances. A large measure, uh, the things for which he has been trained, have become uh, obsolete in the community when he comes out. Many of them spend a great deal of time making license, uh, license plates for automobiles. But when they come out in the outer world, there are no license plates to be made because all the license plates are made in the prison. They, some of them become cabinet makers, but we don't have cabinet makers in the traditional sense anymore. Everything is being cut by panels in the factory and glued on or stapled on. So uh, they are not uh, adequately trained to meet the challenges of an automated society.
What kind of attempts have the state made to correct some of the problems in the prisons, men and women's prisons? I can't really say that they've made any attempts to correct some of the problems because I don't think they know the answers or they're not ready to deal with most of the problems. But they have made several attempts. There's been quite a few pilot programs and new and innovative programs, most of which are ineffective because they're not, they're not put into effect to really work. They're put there to pacify society and to pacify the inmates. There's no real effective way to change a system without first tearing it down. Uh, I'd like to make that quite clear. The only thing that you could possibly do would be to make some modifications to what already exists. And from what I see that already exists is uh, something I term as institutional racism. And you can't change that because you would have to fire all the administrators, which uh, most of them are, are old prison guards, ex-narcotic officers, ex-police officers, and ex-people who, uh, people who have worked in law enforcement field. Uh, the, the, the institutions themselves, they need to have a social adjustment. In other words, there needs to be uh, more academic opportunities made available to inmates, more cultural opportunities made available. Uh, the prisons themselves, walls are built for two purposes. One, to keep people who are inside, inside, and keep those who are outside, outside. How long have you been here? I've been in San Quentin for about five years. How are you going to be here? I don't know. What you in for? <laughs> Armed robbery. What type of changes would you like to see inside the prison? I'd like to see it. Uh, this prison system here totally eradicated. Uh, this thing they have going here as a, as a prison is a, a concentration camp, man. That's all I see it as. They got blacks coming in here for petties with a pride, for spitting on the sidewalk. I mean, half the brothers in here, man, you know, are in here because they're poor. This is the only reason that they're in the penitentiary. If they had they had some money, were able to acquire legal aid or something, they wouldn't be in the pen in the first place, you know. Like myself, half of us got railroaded here, didn't know what we was doing, made little old funny deals with the DAs and everything, and ended up in the pen, you know. Uh, myself, as a prison system, this is a total failure. I haven't seen, you know, in my five years here, I haven't seen anyone uh, go to the street and continue to be a success. You either hear them about him dying, I hear about he's strung out on dope, or either you see him coming back through the gates not too long after he's released from here. Uh, political prisoner, as far as it goes, any, any black man who is aware of himself and aware of the things that's going down out there in the streets today is a political prisoner, you know. Because this is what they're down on the people at the board for now. When you go to the board, they're not asking you where's the clean time, how much clean time you have, how much time you have with write up. They're asking you what do you think about the Black Panther Party? Uh, what do you think about Huey Newton, the Adult Authority Board, the Parole Board? What do you think about the, uh, Huey Newton? What do you think about the Black Panthers, you know what I mean? Uh, why are you a Muslim? Why do you have this outlook? Do you advocate killing white people? And all this stuff like this here, you know. All the questions they ask you have a political tinge and hue to them, you know. This is all. Everybody here who's aware of itself is so far as, man, you know. All this. All I see, man, is uh, oppression. Yeah. That's all I see, a form, another form of genocide. That's all I see. How does the, the, the California Adult Authority relate to others? I mean, what is it? California Adult, <coughs> pardon me. Uh, the California Adult Authority is, uh, you know, known another name as the parole board. Uh, when a person comes to the superior court in a given county and he's sent to state prison, um, then the adult authority 
has the final say as to how long that person is going to remain in prison or whether he's going to get a parole. Even though um, an inmate might have clean, a clean conduct record, uh, even though he might not get into any scrapes, even though he might go along with the program, but if he sh shows any kind of a uh, attitude that the adult authority considers as uppity, then the adult authority says parole denied, and then this just builds up resentment because the man knows he's done nothing wrong. He's done no overt act. Then you have this re resentment spread throughout the prison. Nineteen sixty-one. How did that all start? Oh, he was with a fellow who arrived at a service station in Los Angeles. They were in his old car together, and uh, according to a witness, a young man who worked at the filling station, he said that this man came in with a gun and robbed him. That he didn't see my son at all. This witness was at the courthouse the morning that they had the trial, the so-called trial, the hearing, the morning that the judge sent him to uh, a state prison with an indeterminate sentence. You know, that means that uh, he can go there and stay 12 years before they decide how long they want to sentence him to stay. In the meantime, he's waiting there for the board to decide the number of years they want him to stay in prison. I know once I was lucky enough to talk to a counselor at uh, San Quentin who happened to be a black man, and he told me that uh, my son uh, spoke out too much in his own defense, and if he would learn to keep quiet more and just uh, be humble when he went before the board, take everything they accused him of and not say anything back, that he would be better off. But I don't see how a person can be better off uh, making a dog of themselves or bowing down to anybody. And uh, I think that people, I didn't raise them in the way where uh, you could accuse them of something and if they were guilty or not, they just take it. I think every man should have the right to stand up and defend himself. I don't think that should be a privilege only reserved for white people. I think black people should have it too. I have talked to prisoners who've come from San Quentin and Soledad and Tracy, 
He said that my son taught them how to read. And uh, so I said, well, maybe if he has been in prison for 10 years and he's labeled an animal, he has done some good in this world. And that's the only consolation I can have right now, that he has tried to help his fellow man, even at the risk and the cost of his own life and staying in prison so long. and only other son in the Jackson family was Jonathan, an extremely political youth. Last August, Jonathan allegedly initiated an attempt to free two convicts on trial in a San Rafael courtroom. The judge, district attorney, and three jurors were taken hostage in a waiting van. As the truck pulled out of the parking lot, a force of police, prison guards, and deputies surrounded it. There was shooting. Four persons lay dead. The judge two convicts, and 17-year-old Jonathan Jackson. He was at the school age. You know how it is when you're in school. You're taught a lot of things, but when you see that things aren't like you think they are, then you react, especially a young person growing up in this day and age. They react. They react violently, and especially when something is happening to maybe a person in your family, an awful, dreadful uh, injustice is happening to someone in your family that you love and respect very dearly. Why do you think it happened? Why? Because George was accused of this murder in January, and uh, we had gone to court several times. We knew that he, wor he wasn't going to get any, any justice in the court. It was just obvious the way they were treated. They were shackled. They were in prison clothes. Their hair wasn't combed. Their hands were chained. Their feet were chained. They were chained through their crotch, around their waist, and they had uh, steel leg guards. When my son Jonathan was murdered over in San Marin, 
uh, Marin County or wherever it is. I uh, took him to Illinois to bury him. And before I could get him to the cemetery, uh, the FBI had opened the casting and disarranged his body to the extent where it couldn't be viewed by his aunts and uncles and his cousins who came to see him to show their respect for him. I don't know why they did it, unless they were looking for Angela Davis in the casket. And that's another thing I resent about this whole thing. I resent that this country thinks so little of its black male citizens that they have to say that a woman tells a man what to do. I believe my son was a man. He was 17, and I think he was a better man than a lot of people who lived to be 90. I knew my son better than anybody. And I know that he wouldn't let anybody tell him what to do unless he wanted to do it himself. And I know he wouldn't let any woman tell him what to do. That I know. And I'm tired of reading the accounts of what he was thinking and how he wanted to commit suicide and all these things. I'm tired of reading about it. I'm tired of people telling what he was when people didn't even know him. How they know what he was. He was a gentle person. He was always gentle and kind. And he liked people. And he never felt that uh, people didn't like him. That was the sad part. He always felt that people liked him. And he knew when he ran into anybody who didn't, it really upset him. And uh, he loved his family. And it always upset him because that George wasn't around. For 10 years of his life. Since he was six, he had The only view that he saw of his brother was behind bars or in some waiting room with crowds of other people around. And uh, to have to grow up like that, a male child have to grow up like that, it's, it's terrible. a lot black people can do. For one thing, black people can stop being ashamed of prison or people that they have in prison or relatives that they have in prison or even knowing that there is someone in prison. I, I don't feel that I don't feel that there is the need for shame any longer. There never was in the first place. But this is a level of awareness that I'm at now. Uh, none of us are free. Uh, no black person in this country is free. We're still in prison. Uh, we're in economic prisons. We're in uh, educational prisons. We're in um, environmental prisons. That I mean, the housing that we're forced to live in. You know, we cannot forget the brothers who are in prisons. Uh, we cannot forget those who are still caught up in rat-infested ghettos. We have to use all our resources that we can, financial, influential, just showing our concern. Because this country thinks of us as being black first, before it thinks of us as being human beings, before it thinks of us as being Americans.
Self Advancement Through Education, or SATE, is an organization formed by brothers in San Quentin who willingly spoke of conditions inside that institution, in spite of fears of reprisals. Dealing with some of the oppressive methods of discriminatory and racist practices that is practiced here, dealing with self-advancement through education, we come together primarily in order to educate our brothers into a revolutionary culture vein. It's because this educational system, if we did want it to participate, they won't let us participate because it's discriminatory and it's racist. And then we can go on into many details and I'll explain this to you, which yeah, I like there. Uh, one, one, the specific, one of the specific problems we're concerned with at the moment in here, which is, uh, I think, uh, most black organizations are concerned with on the streets, is that of trying to bring about uh, a form of operational unity among all black people. Uh, in other words, a form of a united front. We're trying to get rid of the tokenism that is involved here. We're trying to be more relevant and stop trying to fool ourselves into thinking we can go back out in the society and become a part of something that is crumbling. We want the support uh, of all the black businessmen out there, of the lawyers, of anyone who's in a position of expertise to come in here and check things out. Brothers are getting arbitrarily harassed on the yard every day. They're taken to the holes, you understand? Our haircuts, you understand me? They complain about our hair. You know, things of this nature. We can't have literature. We can't support our brothers. We can't say black power right on, you know. We can't relate to our own lifestyle within the penitentiary. We have to relate to some automatic uh, uh, prison uh, robot. You see, we can't even buy black products from the canteen. We got to sit back and suffer with with VO5 and uh, suntan lotion. Brothers, we don't need no suntan lotion. What we need is black product. They took brothers to the hole for saluting George Jackson. You see, took him to the hole, man, for saluting the brother when he come out on the yard to go for a visit. And these are the things that's happening to us, man. And our people out there, man, they don't even relate to this, man. You know, well, it's just like uh. When a man sits back and tells you that you cannot have a natural comb, that you cannot grow your hair, the first thing he's telling you is that you don't even exist to him. You see what I mean? So if you don't even exist and you ask yourself the question, what are you doing here in the pen? So what are our people doing to alleviate this whole situation, period? Like a lot of people out there are in position to have not do something, at least investigate this matter and make these things known and carry these things throughout the community so that people will understand that uh, people in here have relegated themselves past the so-called criminal point, shall we call it. In other words, like the whole question of criminality, like in the brother Rochelle McGee's case. Now, this brother was given a life for a so-called $10 robbery and a kidnap. This brother's been down seven years. You see what I'm talking about? Does $10 relegate a man to uh, be in a position to do seven years in the penitentiary? That is genocide in itself. You may rest assured this concrete and steel and uncooked beans. Can you dig what I'm talking about? This prison right here, this pit of hell. It's not going to never kill self-advancement through education. Every black man throughout this nation's idea of taking care of real righteous business. Because we know all of us brothers are fully aware that our sisters and brothers in the north and south and east and west are suffering from, from human dignity and self-respect. And we're definitely going to take care of that. We're prepared, I think, including, concluding, the most important thing black people can do for us is to uh, develop a massive political and legal movement to, to bring this system around. These are the kind of things that uh, bring about the frustration.
fate is here for a change, either to overthrow the prison system or to cause more blood to flow within the prison. Because one thing, we're not going to tolerate it any longer. 71, there will be a change. For anyone, confinement in prison is an endless nightmare. For black people, it's that and more. They're called correctional institutions. Yet, as several inmates pointed out, it's the conditions inside prisons which need the most correction. The complaints of Brothers and Soul Dad in San Quentin can be heard in penitentiaries all over America and reflects the feelings of many black people. But such injustice is deeply embedded in this country and a result of institutionalized racism. Those familiar with prison conditions say change will come when black people and others concerned lend support to the brothers in every prison and make sure that our representatives also represent these forgotten black men. Finally, we must answer the imprisoned sisters and brothers who ask, where is justice? Welcome back. And uh, that was a report done in April of 1971. And uh, we're listening uh, to uh, the Black August uh, programming for the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, August 21st, uh, 2022. This is the 51st anniversary of the martyrdom of George Jackson. And uh, we'll take a break and be back with our concluding segment. Maybe we could find the answer 
I still expected to hear it someday, but not from the radio. Your son died is fairly well known. Do you believe that? Do you disbelieve that? And do you have any other possibilities? What do you think? Really no, I don't believe that because I don't think my son was mad, and I don't think he was an idiot. And I don't think that he would do the things that they said he did. You know, these people have for years gotten away with saying anything that they want to say because they have absolute power over those men. Those men can't even sneeze unless they want them to. They can say anything that they want to say, and we have to take it. You know that. Did they let any of you go in there and find out and talk to the people what happened? You only took their word for what happened, and that's the way it's always been. What do you think? I think they expected me to go and sit in the corner and cry and not really look at George. But I did. I looked at him. I saw everything that happened to him. He was shot more than once. In fact, his body was mutilated. George was a fine-looking man. But you, you wouldn't have been able to recognize him after they got through with him. It seemed as if they just did things to him for a vengeance, you know. And then when I talked on the phone to them about it at San Quentin, they said everybody was glad he was dead. And you could tell that they were glad for what they did to his body. You are free to change whatever you hear into the lies that you see. We have no misconception about how black people are treated in the penal institutions of this country. There's a lady that sits beside me who has first-hand knowledge of the way black people are treated in the penal institutions of this country. We are informed that press coverage... I heard about George's death on the radio. I think that happened. I don't know exactly what happened, but I do know that the guards were out to get him. I know that there was one guard there that treated him very well because he told me this man has kept me alive since they returned me to San Quentin. And I can't, unfortunately, I can't remember his name. Ms. Jackson, there was supposed to be a lawyer. That since we can't get justice from the state of California and we can't get justice from America in general, that we need somebody to intercede for us to see that some justice is done in this country concerning the murder of my son and the murder of so many other men in prison. And uh, it's basically that. Sacrificing white lives along with black lives if it, if it achieves what they're after. In other words, no black boys can get too loud in this country. It's always silence. The minute somebody comes forward and tries to inform the masses of people, white and black, what's going on. Because, you see, most people are selfish. They don't bother to think what's happening to their fellow man just so long as they're surviving, they don't care what happens to the next person. But if some, I don't say that they're cruel, but they just don't stop to think about it. Just like you people, you don't stop to think about anything but getting a story, because that's your livelihood. You don't care where I'm being uh, repressed or murdered, because you, that's not really on your mind. Uh, but once you stop to think about these things, uh, you might be impressed to the fact that, say, we're all Americans. And these things that are happening to other Americans just possibly might happen to me. So in order to keep this thought from ever reaching any of the so-called good people or the silent majority, as they're termed, uh, these things are conducted in a way as to make...
prejudiced against, you know, what's going on. They do this. They frame all these little lies in the prisons. They keep people away from prisons. You know, they build them way out somewhere where when you're poor like me, it takes you forever to get there. And if you get there, you've spent some money that you need to exist on in order to get there. They want to, first they try to take your people away, keep them away that he's a political prisoner, even though he didn't believe, if he didn't, hadn't believed in socialism, if he hadn't believed in that, he would still be a political prisoner. Because in this country, the prisons are run by whatever political party is in. This year it happens to be Republicans, so Republicans are running it. Next year, if the Democrats get in, they'll appoint their special little murderers to do their job. So it's no different. A group in there that are Nazis. And this group, they call themselves Nazis. And this is the people who are hired, who are given special privileges by the guards to do their dirty work for them. Men, that there is real trouble in his body that hadn't been something done to it. Where is his body now? He's buried in Mount Vernon, Illinois. I've decided to take this to the U.N. Uh, on what grounds are you going to approach this body? Uh, on the grounds of, uh, I mean, there are certain, uh, there are certain uh, uh, things that... Change. You say that it's, nothing's happened so far. Now we've had... Attica. I think society has to change also. I think people such as you, your attitudes have to change towards people. You think because somebody's locked up in jail, they cease to be a human being. They're still human beings no matter where they are. And driving through New York is another example of inhumanity, the way people have to live. I mean, not live, exist from day in and day out, just like dogs. I mean, this society, this country, is supposed to be the greatest country in the world. How can, um, how can people who say they love this country and will die for this country, can walk down and look in Harlem, they can go on Fillmore, they can go in Watts and every other ghetto in the United States and watch human beings live the way they have to live and say they love their country. To me, this is a reflection on the country, the way people have to exist day in and day out and be deprived of everything that any human being is supposed to have. Just because all through the years they have not been allowed to achieve anything, and I think it's time people stop passing the buck and stand up and realize what's wrong with this country, that a certain few people want it all, no matter how much it is, and others have nothing. They don't even want you to have welfare to exist. In other words, they want all black people and poor white people to die. They don't even want us here. And when, when are you going to wake up to the fact that this is what really goes on and stop trying to whitewash it? Has the United Nations given any idea that it would be sympathetic to your issue when you bring it before them? We haven't approached the UN yet. I don't think it's a black liberation struggle. I think it's every American's in this country struggle. I mean, we're all Americans. I'm not an African. I'm descended from Africa, but I'm an American. 
Why should I should be treated differently than any other American? That's what's the trouble here now. People try to make this a racial issue. It's not. It's a human issue. It's another human being being mistreated by another human being. And we're all Americans. So if one American can be treated right, why can't all of us? I don't hold any animosity towards people because they're white. I hold it because they're repressors. The one that represses me is the one I don't like. Of course, people, anybody that's repressed should be united. They should be, but I don't know where they are or not. Everybody takes their own little sadness and hides with it, but I'm not hiding with mine. I want the people to know. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Miss Georgia Jackson uh, speaking in the aftermath of the assassination of her son, George Jackson, and uh, a year after uh, the assassination of her other son, younger son, Jonathan Jackson, and that's going to conclude our program for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, August 21st, uh, 2022. Uh, We'll continue with our Black August programs in our next episode. And if you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll be closing out uh, with uh, a classic album, Miles Davis, a tribute to Jack Johnson. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.